Audi. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to the Big Travel Podcast, exploring life stories through travel. I'm Lisa Francesca Nand. Imagine setting off on holiday, driving to the border and finding you don't have your passport. Does today's guest A, turn back, or B, get smuggled across illegally in the undercarriage of a bus? He's a veritable powerhouse of conversation. One of the UK's much-loved entertainers, he's travelled to China, the Amazon, Russia and is a big fan of London. Currently on national radio station Talk Radio, he is Paul Ross. My first journey was through my mother's birth canal into the world and I emerged. What is it? My mother groaned, my father wept, into the dangerous world I leapt. Isn't that a great little poem, William Blake? I grew up, first of all, for about a year in Camden Town, North London, and then we moved to Leightonstone. I was about five or six years old, and that's where I got to know the joys of the London underground system. Sunday mornings, we'd go on the number 10 bus up to Allgate and go to Petticoat Lane Market, which is still thriving, a really buzzy East London street market. But our big journey was when we went, as we say, up west, hop on the central line and go up to Chopham Court Road and the delights of Oxford Street. And it felt like you were going, you'd go underground at Leightonstone, and then underground, and you came up in this magical kingdom of motor cars, posh shops, posh people, and shopping. And I remember back in the day being allowed to do that journey on my own for the first time at eight years old. Difficult to think kids of eight will be allowed that now, but there were fewer cars around, and parents weren't as nervous about that kind of thing. And for me, the Tube has always been a magical journey experience. And I've travelled on the Tube pretty much everywhere I've been where there's been a Tube, you know, New York, Moscow, other places. I love the underground system. Is that your thing then? Do you do great train journeys as well? Not so much great train journey. I do love travelling my train. I must say, I came to driving late. I didn't pass my test till I was 25. It was my third go. But I'm a very bad driver, unless you're my insurance company. And I love the train because I can read a book, look out the window and open a can of beer. Not at 11 in the morning, but, you know, if it's an evening journey, I can open a tin of beer. Maybe half 11, yeah, quarter yeah. to 12. It's five o'clock somewhere, as Alan Jackson saying. So take me back to your childhood. And growing up in London, you must have had access to, to things that other people, you know, didn't really dream of. So what sort of period are we talking about? Well, late? I was a teenager in the early 1970s so that was a glory time but before then we would go on family holidays but I never went abroad I never flew until I was 19 years old and I flew with my then first fiance and first wife to Ireland so we never had continental holidays we couldn't afford it I'm the eldest of six children there's me Simon Jonathan Miles Adam and Lisa and my dad didn't have a car and he wouldn't have got a car big enough to take all eight of us with my mum so we used to get the train down to South End 
got the train to Margate around us getting stay in boarding houses and that was our big summer holiday and my nan lived out of Frinton on the sea which is near Clacton near Waterton on the Nays and we used to go down and stay with her me Simon and Jonathan for long holidays and it was always train journeys rackety train journeys but when I hit teenage years I was lucky because I fought first of all in the glam rock wars then in the punk rock wars and that meant it was all happening in London I'd get the tube up to the Marquee Club I'd get the tube up to the Rainbow which is now sadly defunct I saw David Bowie for the first time I saw Brian Ferry at the Royal Albert Hall and London is fantastic because the tube and bus network mainly the tubes are the arteries of London and London is as we all know really a, it's a big collection of villages and you used to be able to get a Rover ticket and you could get on the tube and spend all day travelling and we quite often did that in the summer holidays because you'd get it for, you know, pocket money prices and we'd suddenly almost do what Alfie Moon did when Shane Richards' character first turned up in Walford. He'd come out of prison, if you remember, closed his eyes and stuck a pin in the tube map. So I pretty much explored London but with no real notion of how London linked up because the tube map is a distortion. The tube map is this fantastic, brilliant design, perfect, but it bears no relation to the geographical distances between places. So I'd sometimes say, oh, Ealing, I'm quite near Hillingdon. Let's walk there four miles but on the tube map it's one stop kind of thing so in that way it was my way gateway into the wider world and i was very lucky in that i was traveling at a time when you could travel 11 12 13 and your parents didn't mind we traveled in groups by and large and we were just exploring london and i'm sure being nuisances generally but exploring london talking about your parents your dad was a lorry driver and your mum an actress that's a very interesting profession for what sounds like a a, a working class, sort of lower middle class Well, my family. mum kind of drifted into the acting and the walk-on work side of it. I was born on New Year's Eve, same day as my dad. When I was born, I weighed £10.13. ounces. I emerged with an audible pot. I wasn't breastfed. I had a cup of tea and a cheese roll. I was a big baby. But when I was about 11, 12, I worked to hang on. Mum and dad's wedding anniversary is June. July, August, September, October, November, six months on, I probably wasn't a planned baby. They were both 17. They had no life and no careers. My dad worked in catering for a while, always kept the family, more and more children emerged. And then when we were about nine or 10, and I was the eldest, my mum saw an advert in the local paper which said, have you got a big family? Children wanted for adverts, earn money. So she took us along to an agency called Wendy Wisby, and they loved us because we weren't particularly good looking or bright, but they could do that thing from, from baby's first steps, through the school years, to that first kiss. So I often was played, I was the older version of my younger brothers, so I did adverts with Jonathan for Win-A-Lot and Legal and General Assurance. We did Weetabix adverts together. And that was our first taste of TV. But it also meant that occasionally, my mum would turn up, she was young and glamorous, looked a bit like kind of pre-60s Liz Taylor. And they'd occasionally said, we need a mum, you'd be perfect. So she got her equity card through that, as did my dad. And my dad would earn extra money. He was an extra on films like Mary Queen of Scots with Vanessa Redgrave, Raid on Entebbe. He was on some dreadful movies, but he was making then, and it made a difference to the family budget. I think extras got then £10 a day. So he'd do that. And my mum would do bits and bobs of acting and then eventually got walk-on work in EastEnders. She was in the very first episode and she retired from it a couple of years ago. She's done bits of stage work and stuff, but she came to it through the fact that they cruelly exploited us children and we stopped doing adverts when teenage spots emerged and also because I went to a comprehensive or whatever it suddenly became perhaps not the done thing if you wanted to survive to be on the telly because I grew up in a when there were only two and a half TV channels I mean until 1982 when Channel 4 turned up TV was an incredibly rare difficult thing for people to get on so we kind of lucked and bumbled our way into it and then drifted away from it and then oddly certainly me Simon and Jonathan and all of us in fact have drifted back into TV in different ways and radio. 
So you went to the University of Kent. I mean, like you said, you went to a, a normal comprehensive in East London. How did you get to university? Because it's not the obvious path. I mean, I was, always, I was always a kind of swatty kid. I loved reading. I loved English. And it came relatively easily to me. So I got decent O-levels, as they were then, GCSEs. Then I got my A-levels. And my dad said, you might as well go to university. And he had a vision, because he left school at 14 when he was evacuated. He had a vision of university kind of being people wandering around in gowns and mortarboards discussing Plato and Aristotle. I knew it wasn't going to be quite like that, but I'd also been going out to pubs since the age of about 15. So when I went to uni, it wasn't like a lot of public school boys and girls seeing the opposite sex for the first time and tasting beer. I went there genuinely to be paid to read books. And what I was really lucky is, I mean, all four of my daughters are either at uni or graduated. They've all got big debts. When I went, and this will make younger listeners green with envy, I paid no fees and I got a full grant which paid my rent, my bus fare, and my food. I always had other pub and bar jobs because I'm a grafter, all my family are. So I don't think I've ever been as cash rich as I was as a student. I was a bingo caller, I unloaded lorries, and I loved doing that, and I was reading. I would treat it like a job. I would go to the uni where I had lectures on at nine in the morning, and I would, if there were no lectures, I'd go back to the library and read. I'd have half an hour at lunchtime, maybe sneak a crafty pint, and read till five o'clock and go back. So for me, it was a nine to five job. I read an enormous amount, not all of it useful, and I was also got married for the first time at university. There's only 20 when I first got married, a bit like my mum and dad. But again, I was the last of my mates to get married. The only one went to university, because that's what happened in the 70s. After Canterbury, University of Kent, I did a year's postgrad at Exeter University. And I had dreams and visions of being an academic. But I was just bright enough to realise I wasn't quite bright enough. So then my second thing I'd always been involved in, when I was 10 or 11, I started a little newspaper with, with my mates at, at primary school. I'd written for little, little articles, had stuff published in you know, various public little publications like music papers. And I'd been involved in the campus radio station at Kent. They were quite advanced for that. So I kind of got a job on a local paper down in Exeter, trained on local papers. They did my three years. My son was born in Exeter. I always wanted to work behind the scenes in telly as a producer or director or whatever. Applied for a job on a show called The Six O'Clock Show. Uh, the producer was a guy called Greg Dyke. Wonder what happened to him. Yes. And the host was Michael Aspel. I worked with Danny Baker, Chris Tamit, Janice Reporter. And I walked my way out from producer to, uh, from researcher to actually running the show within five years. So that was my big break in telly, behind the scenes. Taking it back to travel for a second, you've, you've been to Kent, uh, you're a bingo caller, you're going, working in the pubs, you're having a great time, but really concentrating on the work, as it sounds as well. When you started to earn money, did you were you able to go abroad? And for the first time, you said you went to Ireland for the first time? Well, I started to go to Ireland because my first wife was Irish and we went over to see her family. But that was the only trip we could afford because we were although I was a, I was working as a student she was working I think in Sainsbury's at the time but we'd save up and that would be our trip two weeks in Ireland I didn't go abroad on a continental holiday as such until I took my son abroad when he was about six or seven so that was the first time we went and we went then to Mallorca and places since then I've traveled all over the world but I came late to that kind of travel mainly because the Irish family holidays absorbed all our spare money and I always wanted to go to Germany because for some reason I was obsessed with and a bizarrely pretentious little kid, but obsessed with some of the German philosophers, and I wanted to walk in their footsteps. And I suddenly realised, hang on, it's all blown up by us in the Second World War. There's nothing left over there. Pretty, I mean, I know that's an exaggeration. But I then became, you know, gradually I started to travel more for a living, certainly with filming on TV. I was very lucky to be in TV in the 80s when there was a lot of money in ITV. In the space of about two years, I filmed in New York, Brazil, Sicily. We went to Iceland. I went to Russia twice, all over Germany and all over France and Italy. When we went to Sicily, we investigated um, a mafia-busting mayor. So we're going around Palermo, you were seeing the things and getting a texture of Italian life you won't get if you're there as a holiday maker. So we went to Brazil. We went to Brazil, stopped in um, 
Rio de Janeiro, then got a five-hour internal flight right up the Amazon to near the Bolivian border, and then travelled three days down by a boat, because there was gold mining prospecting in the Amazon then. They were sieving for the gold, burning it off with mercury, and polluting the Amazon. So that was the serious story we were doing. But I saw dawn rise over the Amazon in the middle of nowhere, with no human beings but us around. It was absolutely astonishing. And those, those kind of memories are my big travel memories. They may be work-related, like going to Russia before Glasnost. Going to Russia before the Berlin Wall came down was astonishing. Going to Berlin the week after the wall came down was astonishing. I've been to Hong Kong, I've been all over China, sometimes to visit my daughters, two of whom did Mandarin and lived over there for a while, but also just because the stories with it, Tiananmen Square is in China, you go to China. Where really stood out as completely foreign, completely shocking you know, compared to, to where you come from? I was stunned and staggered by pre-Glasnost, pre-Berlin Wall coming down Russia, not only because of the my sense of history, but the differences, the fact that you could stand in Red Square and see those beautiful minarets and that amazing architecture, and there wasn't a single billboard for a single fast food franchise. There wasn't a single poster for a cinema. There wasn't a single person selling souvenirs. It was all, it was regimented, authoritarian, slightly scary, but it was kind of unspoiled. It was like the alternative version of the 20th century. We all knew by then communism couldn't survive, and I was certainly no communist, but it looked some, it was so alien, but at the same time still European. I know Russia said, you know, it's a different country, a different mindset. Also the vastness of it surprised me. I mean, we did a couple of rail journeys, not that far outside Moscow, and you suddenly realise Siberia, I think, is bigger than the USA, and that's just Siberia. And the scale, I mean, that is somewhere, if ever I were to win the lottery, I would love to do a Michael Palin without a film crew and just and live in Russia for a year and travel all around because it is just such a... And not the old Soviet Union, Russia, Mother Russia. And they are fascinating, poetic, different people. And in some ways, I think, without being sentimental, I don't think they've been contaminated with some of our cynicism and some of our commercialism and some of our kind of sense of entitlement that may have tainted I'm not being unkind about the West or America but you know I've got a certain sense of entitlement I've got a short attention span I have certain expectations a lot of my and I, I made friends over there I've still kept up with a lot of my Russian friends don't have that and they wake up most days a lot of them with a sense of gratitude I think the change in Russia also something they're living through with an open mind I mean they knew change was inevitable they also know they could not immediately graduate to kind of the western market system they could immediately graduate to the western forms of democracy we've got and for them you know no people are no longer getting the KGB knock on the door at four in the morning people aren't disappearing out of people's lives people can speak the truth as they see it yes there are restrictions and there are problems but there are also restrictions they have to be in a free society it's a contradiction in terms the restrictions in the west Two of my daughters live in China for a while. One is still over there at the moment. And um, there are certainly restrictions in China. But again, things are changing there. Because in the end, I think, hopefully, and I am hopeful for the future, I have to be with two grandsons, I think man's a rational animal. And the more we travel and the more we get to know each other, the more we realise, and it's a cliche, but it's true, that fundamentally we are the same. And people in Vietnam, people in Bogota, in Colombia, people in Texas have much the same concerns and considerations as people everywhere else. And that's, that's the great thing that travel brings to us all. This is very much a question that men don't get asked. So you're travelling all over the world for work. How do you balance that with having a family and kids at home? I did breakfast radio for years. Now, the downside was my then-wife was always coping with the breakfast. The upside was, though, most days of the week, I could meet my daughters at the school gate. I could meet my son at the school gate because my schedule was different. Weekends, I wasn't working. 
I mean, I've done loads of game shows over the years. The first one I did was a show called Jeopardy, the American show for Sky One. We filmed it in Nottingham Monday to Friday, and I was away from Sunday night to Friday evening. I was around all weekend, but I was away. I'd phone them up, talk to them, but for six weeks to earn money, Dad was away. But when my dad was a lorry driver, he'd be away for three or four days, not earning that kind of money. Now, money's no compensation for time with the family, but an awful lot of working men, working women are working and away from their families. And what I was, you know, seriously, I went to every school play, I went to every single nativity, harvest festivals, because I was around. I mean, I, I spent, I think, a week and a day in Brazil, but then I didn't travel again for a month. You worked on pretty seminal programmes like The Word and uh, and then on The Big Breakfast. I mean, how was that? And how and how also did your transition go from behind the scenes, editor and, and series editor, to um, presenting and reporting? I think two things happened to put me from behind the cameras to the front of the cameras. One was my brother Jonathan got very famous very quickly in the 80s. I was then, thankfully, quite a senior producer by then, but people started to think, hang on, this bloke Jonathan Ross is really charismatic and funny. We've got our own Ross. He may be older and uglier and shorter, <laughs> but he's cheaper and he can speak properly. So I think Jonathan, the surname certainly helped. And my early career in TV was serious journalism. And I then lucked into showing off on game shows and doing silly stuff because that's the more natural side of me. But also what happened around that time was TV exploded. So when I was growing up in the 1960s and 70s, very rarely do you see anybody who was on TV. You didn't know anybody who was on TV if you're an ordinary Brits, you just didn't know anybody. Channel 4 came along, TV exploded, more faces, more reality, more people, there were more jobs. So in that way, I, and I've always been lucky, I've always had more than one job, and quite often, when I was producing The Word, I was fronting a show in London called Crime Monthly, a local version of Crime Watch. So I've always done different things. I mean, recently I was doing uh, Breakfast Radio for the BBC a few years back, but I was also producing a Johnny Vaughan show. So I did two or three jobs at the same time. And TV and radio can allow you to do that. But I'm under no illusions. Basically, I'm a gob on a stick. My dad once said to me, I can't remember what I was moaning about. My dad's about a few words, most of them unbroadcastable, but he said, I was moaning. I think I, I, think I was in a house. Dad, this, I'm filming tomorrow, there's no trouser press. He said, Paul, <laughs> cop on yourself. He said, you are paid to show up, show off, and push off. Does anything phase you in terms of work? You know, because this is all high-profile stuff. You're on the TV. It's a lot of responsibility. You know, you're in front of the cameras and uh, on the radio. Does anything phase you now with that? Two things really about being phased by TV or radio. Very early on, I was told the six P's of TV and radio. Would you like to hear them? I'm sure you would. I'd love to. Proper preparation prevents piddle poor performance. And I've cleaned that up a bit. But you take my point. So it's all about as much work in advance as you can. The other thing about it is, which I think is a key thing for people, is that the audience doesn't know, by and large, and I've done a lot of live TV, what they're meant to see or hear. So the important thing is confidence. If you don't acknowledge it as a mistake, it's not a mistake. If you say, and we'll go to that in a moment, you'll get out of jail. The problem is if you start to feel yourself unravelling. I mean, I've often said, and it's true, I can teach anybody to be confident on TV, or on radio, but mainly TV, in an afternoon. The tricks are minimal, it's practising after that and getting confidence. What I can't teach people, I don't know myself because I haven't got it, is something happens between some people and the camera. Now, there's a crackle between the camera and Chris Evans. Now, you look at Chris, with no disrespect to him or the ginger people, but you think, he ain't, he's not George Clooney. You know, there's no reason why the camera should love him. It does. The camera loves my brother Jonathan. The camera loves Davina McCall. She's a very attractive one, beautiful, but she, you know, she's not super model. You know, Jonathan isn't David Gandy. Terry Wogan's a case in point. Now, you look at Terry, he said it himself, a tubby, middle-aged Irish man, but the camera loved him. In the way that there were a gazillion beautiful blonde women in Hollywood in the 1950s, there was only one Marilyn Monroe, because the camera loved her. I can't teach that, 
but I'd teach anybody to be a TV presenter. It's something you've just got, I yeah. guess, innately. Yeah. At this point, when you're, you're, your career's doing really well, are you still going on family holidays? How does that work? Well, the first big family holiday started with my son, and I started taking him away. I then sadly divorced his mum, or she divorced me, but I'd take him away on holidays, and he'd come away with us. And then when my daughters were born, I was earning decent money, and we began to do the big family things, which was Disney World, we took them to a Club Med holiday on... That was on Sicily as well. I think that was lovely. We took them all over the place. We started taking them around in the UK at weekends because when I was doing the Big Breakfast, I followed Mark Lamar, and basically the idea was the Big Breakfast could pop up anywhere in the UK and knock on your door. And it's called Where Are You, Paul? And we drove all over the UK. I loved it because it was a different town every day, but it's a bit like being a rock band in the 1960s. They'd say, Where Are You, Paul? And I'd suddenly think... Hang on, yesterday I was in Carlisle. Oh, no, today I'm in Exeter. And we really did travel because, you know, it couldn't be predictable. I only did that for six months and it was wonderful. When I look back, I don't know quite how I had the stamina. And it was a bit like sensory deprivation because no matter how many CDs you had, and CDs had just come in by then, how many conversations you've had, you run out of stuff. And you run out, you get fed up with another night, another takeaway another hotel breakfast. It sounds really a first world problem, but that's what got me down in the end. It was just too much. Not the travelling, the almost similarity. There's a famous story about Lou Reed from the Velvet Underground, now sadly dead, but he, um, when he first made it big, he started touring and touring and touring in America. America's vast, as you know. And he kept touring, and he'd come back home, and he was people couldn't live with him. So what he did was, apparently, in his wonderful New York apartment, when he came in, he had it made to exactly mirror a holiday in bedroom. <laughs> And for the first day back, or second day, he decompressed in there because that's what was imprinted on him. And that's what he had to do. And I felt, I'm no Lou Reed, I'm not that talented anywhere near it, but it was weird. that As soon as I got home, I was thinking, I've only got two days, tap the desk, make the most of it, two days. And finally, think, no, no, I can't live my life with this. So in the end, after six months, we kind of had enough. And, 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 and you know, he did it better than me. Keith Chegwin took over. So where was your favourite place that you uh, visited in the UK? I love seaside towns. Um, I lived for a while when I was at the University of Kent, at home bay in Kent, loved it. And my nan lived in Frinton on the sea, the old joke, Harrods for the continent, Frinton for the incontinent. <laughs> no longer true now, of course. That was a wonderful place. And I like places like Morecambe. I like places like, I tell you, Skegness is beautiful. I love Edinburgh, it's a beautiful place. We went to several times. And I love places like Bath for a bit of history and saturation. Because I think because I'm from such a big family, I like crowds and bustle. I like the countryside. I've lived in the country a lot. I've lived in West Sussex, Buckinghamshire, Royal County of Berkshire. My dream would have come true. I spent a year in Russia travelling, and then I'd come back and I'd buy a rundown cinema somewhere like Kern Bay, right on the seafront, and I'd show only the films that me and my mates wanted to see and the festivals, and maybe run a little hotel in the cinema as well. A cinema hotel on the Kent coast, that'd be my idea of heaven. If I've been a good boy, that's what God will give me when I die. That sounds like quite an achievable dream. Before you die. Yeah, but you know. We race to stay and sell in this business, don't we? And there's always another job and another contract. And also, I think, you know, Karl Marx once said, man lives to work. Man works as bird flies. Well, there are no dodos or penguins in the Ross family. We all work. We lo- we're very lucky. We love what we do. My brother Simon, uh, him and his wife and man, have the company that makes things like Saturday Kitchen. There's Jonathan, of course, who at the moment, I think, is back in prison, but he'll be out soon with a new <laughs> TV show. My brother Miles, a big TV producer, works in Hollywood with Lee Evans. My brother Adam has worked a lot. He's a great musician. He's worked with Adam, but he's also directed TV stuff. And my sister was an actress for years. She's the only one now with a proper job. She's the only one who went to stage school. Italia Conti, and she had one with a proper job because after her three daughters were born, the lovely daughters, she did an open university degree and she now te- teaches English and drama at a state school up kind of Stevenage Way. So she's the only one who's actually contributing to society. The rest of us are paid to show off. My dad was always about academia, get your qualifications, study, enjoy it, whatever you enjoy. And he was brilliant, my dad. He, um, 
when we were interested in something, he would immerse himself in it. And I only found out years later, he'd asked what I was reading, and I'd tell him, and he was a, by then he was a boilerman at the National Heart Hospital, working shifts. Two days later, he came and said, and he said, that H.G. Wells was an interesting fella. Have you got to the bit where War of the Worlds... And only later, there was, he was reading in tandem with me so he could talk to me about the books, which was fantastic. He did it one by the Simon about geology. Jonathan was always keen on art and drawing, and he used to draw his own comics. He's still comic-obsessed, Jonathan. And my dad somehow blagged, better not ask, a proper architect's draft board for him so Jonathan could draw properly. And he's a wonderful father. My mum, though, was always Miss Showbiz. That's where that comes from. If she went to the fridge and opened it and the light came on, she did 20 minutes. <laughs> she was always a fan, and she loved doing that. And I think she felt... Not, not in any way jealous of what we'd done because you know she never wanted to be a presenter she could have been and would have been I think a very good actor actress had I not come along too early and she and got married at 17 as, as, well. the way, as the way people did and then six kids and she loved it was always fantastically supportive but then she got back into EastEnders for years she's a, had a walk-on part in uh, four weddings and a funeral she did lots of extra work over these and she with, a, with my stepdad they've got a little theatre company and they put stuff on in Hitchin and Hertfordshire and very involved in all that John Lennon once said life is what happens to you while you're making other plans but also I think you eventually, like a tributary from a river, you may not go with the main river, but you drift along in the same direction to whatever your sea of choice is. To keep the travel analogy going there. Yes, thank you. <laughs> Talking of travel, um, has anything uh, terribly amusing happened to you on your travels? Uh, the first time I went skiing, and I'm not a natural skier, but uh, my then wife loved it, and we went along before any children were born, and we booked a coach to Courchevel, and we're going to hire the skis there, all sorted out. We got, as the coach was departing, we sat there, I suddenly felt a tremor from my lovely girlfriend, looked down, she'd left the passports in our flat. So we're on the coach going to Dover to drive across, to then drive more hours on this coach which converted to bunk beds to go to Courchevel. I went and spoke to the driver, okay, a tenner was given to him, and he smuggled us into France with the luggage. So when they, and it wouldn't happen now, because of security reasons, but he said, all right, he said, I can tell you on the level, I told him what was happening, by then of course, and it wasn't her fault, but you know, said, everyone might say, my girlfriend was sobbing, he said, okay, here's what we do. He stopped outside Dover. The rest of the coach were cheering us as idiots. We went inside in the dark in luggage. And I'm thinking, this could be a wind-up. This boat could leave us in here for the whole ferry trip. But no, let us out. But then towards the end of the ferry journey, we had to get back in with the luggage and be smuggled into France. You went into the luggage compartment. Yeah, under the coach, with the carbon monoxide, no doubt. Wouldn't be allowed now. And But actually... At the other end, we simply got then kind of, the, you know, the kind of temporary passports to get back into the UK. And that's my big memory of the first time I went skiing was being contraband. I was smuggled goods. You know, I figured it was worth a punt and worth a tenner. And it was. We had a great skiing holiday. And people came, here, are you the Herberts you got smuggled in because you've got your passports? Oh, like, it's, it's, quite, yeah, it's quite jolly for us. And we came, minor celebrities for the idiots who've got their passports. Brits abroad, what were you doing with us? I wonder if that uh, driver still tells a story and recognised you later on when you were on uh, Actually, that's TV. an interesting point because I was producing then. I wasn't I wasn't presenting, but, you know. But the thing about it is, it's like anything else. People want to help people, don't they? And, you know, I'm sure... The, the, they want to the help down, people by smuggling yeah, them out the, the, yeah, country, yeah, the, the yeah. downside, I suppose, is a tenner in retrospect wasn't enough because he'd have probably lost his job had he known that, wouldn't he? But, you know, oh, go on, in you go. Go on then, you muppet. He said, jump in the bottom, you know. And, it's quite, it's, and again, we came back up, you measured cheers of derision. But it was quite funny. You know, it was a, a great trip, I must say. I think things were different then. Yeah, I yeah. remember customs at uh, Spain and we'd, we'd be able to just walk through and yeah. help people with the baggage when our aunties and grandmas were arriving in Spain where I lived. We'd just say, can we go through? And they'd go, yeah, yeah. Help yeah. take the suitcases off. And... Happier times. And I'm sure we'll go back to them one day. Well, I don't know. I think travel has changed, unfortunately, you know, because of security. And, you know, there was once where the, the journey was, was part of the holiday. And now it's it seems like a hassle. You know, everyone's queuing, everyone's being searched. Quite lucky when I'm travelling, though, because I've always had the irritating to my partner's ability to kind of park all that and just 
get a book out. You know, I can sit there with a book and it doesn't matter to me if the plane's delayed two hours because I'm reading, I'm in another place. I've also, I've got an irritating big repertoire of poems I've memorised and that's mainly because when I was at school, a comprehensive, when you got detention with the English master, he wouldn't give you lines, he would make you memorise a poem. And you couldn't, you, if you memorised it and could recite it once without a mistake, you could go before your time was up. I was in detention a lot. I know a lot of poems by heart. So if I'm stuck waiting for a bus or a train, if I'm at an airport, I can recite to myself things like, um, when in disgrace with fortune in men's eyes, I will alone be weak, my outcast state, and troubled of heaven, with my bootless cries and look upon myself and curse my fate, wishing me like to one more rich in hope, featured like him, like him with that possessed, desiring this man's art and that man's scope, with what I most enjoy, contented least. When in these thoughts my state almost depressed, I think of you, and then my state, like to the lark, at break of day arising from sullen earth, sings hymns at heaven's gate, for thy sweet love remembered, such wealth brings, that then I scorn to change my state with kings. It's a lovely love sonnet by William Shakespeare. I learnt it when I was 13 to get 20 minutes of a detention. Have you ever thought it might happen if you said that aloud when you were sitting there waiting for the plane or the bus or whatever it might but, but be? Quite often, You'd be arrested. I, quite often, you know, because people sing when they're waiting. I've quite often said, it is what, it is what. And I do a comedy, you know, because actually... Again, there's a basic thing. What I love about travel is I like chatting to people. Again, I think from being from a big family. And, you know, you're waiting for a train and it's quite nice. Oh, I look, where are you off to? And there's, everybody's got a story. Travel is much better if it's a shared experience. I went to a bloke the other day and I said, oh, hello, mate. Where are you? He said, oh, I said, I'm going to, uh, he's off to Leeds. And he's waiting at Peterborough. I said, all right, what's in Leeds? I'm having a tattoo removed. <laughs> no, I'd never, the guy looked though like a vicar. I'd never have thought, he had a, you know, that at some stage and he told me he'd been in the Merchant Navy, he got drunk, he was in Buenos Aires, I think, and his mates, when he was drunk, got him tattooed right round his waist, the dragon. He woke up in excruciating pain because it had gone septic and he'd been there ever since. And finally, his children and his wife had clubbed together and he got the money to have it lasered off. Oh now, I never, that sort of story you can make up, is it? No. I've got that on Peterborough Station. I was going to London. He was going to Leeds. I mean, what, what are the chances? Did he show you it? Thankfully, he didn't get your belly button out. But, you know, that kind of thing happens when you're travelling, doesn't it? You just chance encounters. When you have been away in exotic climes, because you have been to a lot of exotic climes, have you ever felt threatened? I mean, you, you chat to everyone, you know, very open person. Have there been ever t any times where you've thought, oh, hang on, this is not a good idea? The only time I didn't listen to advice, and I did feel I was actually threatened with a knife, but it ended reasonably well for me, was I went to Rio de Janeiro. And they told us all, we were right on the beach, right on the Copacabana or somewhere, but they said, when you go out of the hotel, basically just wear your shorts, maybe have some money tucked in your shorts, but take nothing else. Not me. I went on there, Brit abroad, had a nice shirt on, had my chinos, had a pair of shoes on, had my swing costume on, a towel wrapped up. And I went down to the beach, laid my towel out, and I've laid back there, I think I'll go in a minute, and suddenly I saw this shadow appear, run past me, and pick up my trousers. <laughs> the guy's grabbing chinos. I go, Oi! Oi! Chased after him. He was about 14, he was like a ferret, he ran like Pele. And I've got nowhere near him, right? And then he's kind of stumbled, I've got close up to him, and he suddenly turned, he's got a knife, and he threw my trousers back at me because he'd been through the pockets and found there was no money in it. And I suddenly realised there are times when, you know, he was obviously robbing for his life. And when you've got nothing, as Bob Dylan said, you've got nothing to lose. And after that, I did take, when I went to a place, you think, learn from the locals, take the advice. But, we, you know, we all, we all make mistakes, don't we? And I've been very lucky, and I've never been injured abroad, I've never had to go to hospital abroad, I've never even, I don't think, come back with a cough or a cold. So in that way, I'm lucky. But I did have my trousers stolen and then rifled through and returned to me contemptuously because I had no money and by a young lad wielding a knife. Were you offended that he didn't want to keep your trousers? Well, it could have been worse because they broke the system. Sometimes they will keep the trousers and sell them on. I needed my trousers back. That was because what he had left in there was the hotel, the pass card with nothing on it, you know. So and that was a weird trip. I mean, I mean, Brazil is again another beautiful, vast country. I remember we went up to the 
it was sunset and we were up at a place called Porto Velo, quite close to the Bolivian border. And we were, we had, we were on a boat and one of the guys had a gun because it was a gold mining town. There were outlaws and bandits. We saw a couple of dead bodies in the river. Um, but then one, one of the great memories of travel that stayed with me is towards sunset, the um, sun setting, and you can just see the beautiful, the endless Amazon rainforest and the, and the late sun rays are flickering off the river Amazon. And he got his gun and he, went, and he held his gun aloft and he fired it. And suddenly the sky was black with bats that had come from that particular part of the bank and it blotted out the sunset. But he woke them deliberately because they then realised there was still sun, so they all settled back down magically into the trees. And if I saw that as a special effect in a movie, I wouldn't believe it. But I saw it with my own eyes and it was astonishing. And that guy was incredible because he was very taciturn and he told us a little bit about himself, but that was kind of the only real human contact we'd had with him apart from professional stuff. So he, that was his kind of gift to us and I've never forgotten it. Were you filming that? Again, not oh, sad. Again, no, there are some things only the human eye and the human memory can do justice to, and that was one of them. And again, any cameraman, there was one. Just one more, love. No, the bats will only do it once, you idiot. There was one another. Retake. No, we're not can killing the bats again. Down? You know, no, of course not. And it was magical. Bang, up they went. It's still daylight. Down they went. That was a great trip, though. So is there anywhere that you haven't been that you'd really, really like to go? I would love to go to Antarctica. And Antarctica, or the Arctic, basically, you know, because I've seen those places courtesy of the likes of Michael Palin and documentaries. But I think to see something like the Northern Lights, or to go down and see the penguins at the South Pole, or the, whatever, would just be fantastic. It's um, a bit annoying for sort of professional travel journalists like me, but you know, the big thing at the moment, and it, it has been, like you said, Michael Palin. But it seems like everyone has got like a travel log. You know, Sue yeah. Perkins, lots of other people, train journeys, Jonah boat journeys. Done it, and yeah, all done it, yeah, everyone's doing. Michael Pocello, sort of... Chris Tarrant personal journey yeah. do you not would you not be able to sell in one of those ideas to someone or do you wait till they approach you i think one of the problems with me is i've always been much more unless something's incredibly striking i'm much more of a words person so when i go to prague and i've been a few times i want to see it i want to see kafka's prague you know and i want to go where kafka went when i go to dublin i love dublin but you know i've got the joyce museum or i see where wb yates and oliver singen gogarty hang out or you know sean o'casey was right in his place so i mean michael Palin's great because he's genuinely exhilarated i think he, i think he's our best one actually i think he's the one who and he re, he re, he wrote that rule book basically because nobody do around the world in 80 days would be a huge hit. other people have been offered it apparently um alan wicker turned it down i think noel edmonds turned it down according to michael Palin in his diaries true, but, but it'd be very different kind of wouldn't it be very and with noel edmonds they were going to catch up live with him once a week and he'd done the journey in real time interesting idea no doubt somebody one day might do that because it's eminently doable but I'm also I'm I'm not that engaging company I'm pleasant enough but I'm not I think naturally warm the way that Palin is and you know and, and Tarrant is great fun on his railway journey so you know I think no for me I think I'll when I, have been, when I go around Russia for a year I'll go on my own Has any experience when you've been travelling changed the way you think about things or deeply affected you? I think the big impact for me has been the way I look at animals having travelled a lot. And we know different cultures have different needs and demands. I'm sitting here making excuses. But I've been to North Africa a few times. And, for example, the way donkeys are used there and kind of cast aside and so cruelly treated has stayed with me since I first went there. And that was for a filming job. And I've been back since for holidays. And I'm kind of involved with charities to do with that. Similarly with dogs around the world. I mean, I went to Romania just after the fall of Ceausescu. And, I mean, it was an incredibly cruel regime. And people who came from the... He forced people in from the country to live in the cities and towns. They weren't allowed officially to bring their dogs with them. But he, they took their dogs. They're human beings. They want their dogs. But the dogs were living outside. They lived 
almost then they went feral because people moved back again or whatever. Then they banned it in, and the conditions, for example, dogs lived in in Romania really stuck with me. It sounds quite a small thing, but I'd never really before. I would be compassionate about animals, but I never really think about them in terms of being in need of human help and support. And that really, and that was North Africa and Eastern Europe, because people were struggling for their own lives and their family lives. The level of almost ignoring the cruelty and suffering around them, when you kind of think, look at that donkey. I can see its bones where it's been beaten or it's got sores from carrying that saddle all its life, you know, and it kind of it just was such a wake-up call there. I've never been to India, and I think, not for any reason, but I've never been, my daughters have travelled through, and what I hear about some of the levels of suffering there and the beggars and stuff, I think that would... But, you know, I'd like to think I'm compassionate about human beings anyway, but that was a real switch for me to travel, kind of taking a different view of animals as, you know, as living beings. It is very hard, I think, in places like India and uh, and particularly with the children as well, in places like Cambodia, where there's lots of kids with missing limbs and they're begging you for money and you don't know, you know, what to give or whether to give. People tell you not to give. Whether some gang master's taking the money off them or whatever, exactly. yeah, what to do for the best. I think Tolstoy got it right, though, who was asked, you know, once, you know, master, you know, given the level of human suffering, the scale of suffering in the world, what can we do? And he said, you do the good that's in front of you. So I think if you go somewhere like that, there are schemes. If you, you can't give to every street beggar, you don't know where that money's going, but there are always things you can get involved in and help with or leave with or, you know, we've all got different levels of what we can afford to give, but there are things you can do to help. And, you know, that's something, again, we take away from travel, I think, is that we are, yeah, you know, different countries, different interests, different people, different races, different religions. We are one species. We're humanity and we're all living beings. So even though that may not be my dog, it's a dog and it's deserving of deserving of care, compassion, shelter and food. It's our culture. Well, we can change that. The only way is ethics. Uh-huh. I've almost quoted that, yes. <laughs> um, so if you had to spend one day on Earth uh, in any other place or country than home, where would you go? I think I'd go to Philadelphia. I love Philadelphia. Great attitude there, great bars there. And because it's got kind of a huge shoe into our history as well, college town, great American shopping, cuisine from all over the world, and they've got some amazing... Because they're on that great big river... You've got amazing restaurants on the river, on the boat. So I, for, for one day, Philadelphia. Oh, you've actually convinced me I've never been. And it's never been on my list, actually. And you can do it, in a, it's only about an hour and a quarter or something from New York. You can get the train there. They get, you know, if you go out the night before, stay one night and come out the next day. It's a wonderful place. One of my uh, last questions is something that I can't, can't actually afford to ask at the moment because I'm a massive music fan and I'd love to, uh, to play a song as we sort of left you. But um, if you had to think of a song that we would play, if we could afford to play a song that reminds you of a particular time or moment or a special moment in travel, what would that be? First time I went to New York was 1984. I just got together with my second wife, madly in love, went to New York for two weeks for the six o'clock show with Michael Aspel. Danny Baker came out, we did some filming over there, and that was the year that Born in the USA was released. And I absolutely love that album. And if anybody talks about travelling and the open road and freedom, it's Bruce Springsteen. So I'd play one of the album tracks off that. It was a huge hit single, Dancing in the Dark. Because that for me is always America and New York and freedom and travel. You know, you can go anywhere, you can do anything, get behind the wheel of that car, get that train ticket and take off and travel. Well, thank you so much, Paul Ross, and to Talk Radio for the use of the studio. And thank you for listening to the Big Travel Podcast.